My name's Alison Dunsmore. I'm the HR manager for Elim, based in Malvern. Um, I've only been with Elim relatively short period of time. Um, that's October last year. Um, and so what I thought would be useful is to, first of all, tell you a little bit about me. Just gain a gauge from the people that are here as to what you do um, so that I can hopefully help or give you some advice in relation to recruiting through the churches. Now, there are lots of topics that kind of touch HR, as I'm sure you're aware, and we'll see those as we go through this session. Um, I'm going to do a Q&A at the end. Uh, if you want to ask questions, then please do. It may be something that's slightly more detailed um, that I might need to get back to you on because there are certain topics like, for example, recruitment for, for people who um, come from abroad to work in the UK, which is a slightly more detailed and complex um, topic. So we'll touch on that in this session, but I'll probably send out some information to you, etc., if that's what you're interested in. You can probably hear um, I'm from, I'm not from up, up north, I'm from down south. And most of you will be able to tell that I haven't been to Rodine either. I, um, I was kind of brought up in Chingford, which is on the borders of um, London and Essex. First of all then, I'm going to ask around the room, um, have I got people here who are responsible for HR in churches? If you are, just raise your hand. Okie dokie. And um, volunteers who are responsible for HR in churches or HR managers? A bit of both. Yes, yeah. So elders. Yes, yeah. Fine, fine. Okay. And others, I'm guessing you're just really interested in HR and recruitment. Hail from Chingford. Um, and uh, I've... I live in Worcester now, um, but um, I've basically spent most of my life around, around Chinkford, Essex area, um, and realistically, so born in Wanstead, Wanstead Hospital, and then lived in Chinkford with my family till I was about 17, 18. And this is when we get onto the next kind of slide, which is quite an unusual slide because it shows a lot of time. I'm going to take this out, actually, it's probably easier. Okay, so now this slide might be a little confusing. It depicts the fact that some of you might think, actually, did I train to become a nun? No, I did not. <laughs> However, um, I grew up in the 80s, and I love the music of the 80s, hence why we've got a picture of boy George there. I did go and be a nanny in Austria, Hence why we've got Julie Andrews up there singing in a field. And um, after being a nanny in Austria, I was actually a travel rep for a while. So I travelled around Europe and I was a travel rep. And when I came back to the UK, um, I kind of didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I started working within retail and um, was asked to um, help people with training in a department store called Owen and Owen, which is an old-fashioned, uh, they don't survive anymore. And, um, and they asked me to actually move into HR, which is what I did as like a 
a trainee really and then kind of worked my way up from there and then studied did my IPD etc and um, went on to become an HR manager for the department store Beatties which most of you might know um, they've got a massive or they used to have a massive store in Wolverhampton that was bought out by House of, House of Fraser um, sadly um, when being bought out from House of Fraser um, they really bought the chain stores uh, for the buildings that we were in and then decided to sell off all of the assets. Hence, we went through a massive um, restructure and I got made redundant. At that point in time, um, I applied, was applying for HR jobs and I saw a job that really intrigued me and it was to work in a convent. So um, I went to work in a convent in Birmingham called this, I've got to get this right now, Sisters of St. Paul the Apostle, who are um, based in Selly uh, Park, Park, Selly Park, isn't it? Yeah. And um, I went there as an operation slash HR manager, set up, up the function. It had a nursing home, um, its own... Um, it was fair to say, well, it was a graveyard at the end of the garden where all the nuns and the sisters were buried. Um, catering, um, assisted care living for the sisters. Um, and I worked there for about eight and a half years. Um, eventually left there to help care for my mum, who was really poorly, and secured a part-time job at YMCA then, after that in uh, Worcestershire. So I worked at YMCA for about eight years and then my CEO got, went and got himself promoted. So he went down to London and became the company secretary for the YMCA. And, um, and I decided at that point that I wanted to look for something slightly different and um, I wanted to actually work closer from home. So um, I applied for various jobs and I was offered Elim, and that's how I've come to Elim. So, yes, I've dealt with lots of religions and <laughs> sisters, Catholic, faith, um, etc. So, as I said, that's that's really um, uh, a brief his synopsis of my history. Really, one of the things that I believe about, and I think why I've stayed in HR for such a long time, is because I'm passionate about a couple of things, and. Um, I'd like to share some of these passions with you. So, first of all, I haven't got any children, and the thought of children playing the piano whilst they're learning is not something that I would relish. I possibly would want a pair of those earphones. But it's nothing to say I don't... I do think children really excel when they're doing music, um, and I think the fact of children and music together are amazing... These are the two little scruffy herberts and my passions, which are my fur babies. They're my dogs, um, Lottie and Millie. And um, finally, oops, I don't think that one should be there, actually. The red wine and cheese. I do love red wine and cheese, but it's obviously been put in there by mistake. It's not my greatest passion. It's one of them. My greatest passion is people. I really enjoy people. I think that um, everyone's got the most amazing gift some are really lucky they find out what it is and obviously in um the the work that i've chosen to do um 
I've been fortunate enough, I believe, to see people um, develop their gifts and go on to achieve wonderful things. So I think everybody's got an autobiography in them. Um, and they're living that autobiography every single day um, with all different characters, with the highs and lows that is in every single blockbuster that you'd ever want to see. And it's each and every one of us has got that in us. And to me, that's why I think people are probably the most important asset in any business. Uh, and that's why I choose to carry on working within that field. So when we're talking about people, one of the things you want to try and do is obviously get them to work for you or recruit them into your business if you possibly can. So that's why when asked to do a presentation here, um, I decided to do it on recruitment. Now, some of the things that I um, would say to you is that since the coronavirus, um, recruitment has got extremely tough. Um, job vacancies in the UK have hit a record high, um, going up to almost, um, I think it was, what did I say, about 20, 20 yeah, we go, 1.1 million um, between um, July and September 2021. And there's soon to be another, an update on that, and it's likely to be even higher. Um, Time, the average time to recruit someone is taking between fifth or used to take 15 days, it's now going up to about 23. And I would actually contest that and say, to be perfectly honest, I've noticed, and even in the six months I've been with Elim, we've had to re advertise jobs because it is such a tight labour market out there. There are particularly some fields, such as nurseries and hospitality that are really struggling to recruit at the moment and it's very difficult for them. Um, the number of employees on payroll, just to let you know, the lady that does my payroll is over there so I have to be very nice to As I said, that it's increased to just under 30 million on payroll and one of the uh, stats I was looking at is that glass door recruitment are estimating that there is a cost to an organisation of approximately £3,000 to recruit every employee. Now, I know you're all going to say, shout out, hold on a minute, Alison. We don't have £3,000 in our church budgets to put some fancy ad in some newspaper. That just isn't the case. But if you actually consider the amount of time in training that new employee, sifting through the applications, perhaps re-evaluating the job description... Um, the time taken to recruit, etc. It probably is a fair representation of what it's costing in time-wise to actually get somebody employed. So, and I think I've just... This slide really is just shows up until February how much kind of unemployment has, has kind of fallen. So unemployment has gone down from just under 6% to 3.8. And employment of all aged 16 to 24 has gone up to 75.5%. So it's tough out there at the moment to recruit. Okay. Okay, so the seven stages of, of recruitment are... Um, identifying the hiring needs, preparing the job descriptions or personal specifications, devising your recruitment strategy, 
screening and shortlisting your candidates, conducting the interviews, evaluating making the offers, on, and onboarding the new employees. And that's a vital step, I think, which a lot of which people forget. Let's look at step one, which is identifying the hiring need. Now, when somebody leaves, um, one of the questions I think you should be asking yourself, particularly in this really tough time, is do you need to re-recruit? Is it a time to re-look at restructuring? Or, you know, what is it that you actually need? Because so often, people automatically jump into wanting to recruit because um, Jane Smith's walked out the door, they look to recruit another Jane Smith. It very well may be that you want to restructure what you're doing to actually accommodate it. And when somebody leaves is the most disruptive way of doing it because going through a restructure actually can cause a lot of bad feeling and, and um, is difficult to sometimes make people believe that it's for the best. Okay? So that's the first thing to do. Okay, the second thing to do is to prepare the job descriptions. And what you need to do for that is really carry out a job analysis. So we're looking at the purpose of um, what the duties are involved, how and when they're to be carried out, what outputs are expected of the job holder, how they're going to fit into the organisational structure, the job description itself. Now, this is what the person wants to know most of the time. They want to know their job title, the hours of work they're going to work, if it's going to be set time or a working pattern, what their salary is, the staff benefits, the flexibility that they may have within the role, and the location potentially of where they're going to be um, placed. Also in the job description under the roles and responsibilities, you're going to include the job requirements, the responsibilities and objectives of the role, and the skills and qualifications that are required. Now, a lot of people tag on the personal specifications. This really relates to people's kind of essential criteria for selection. Now, quite often, um, people make... Um, I would call them faux pas in regards to the characteristics that they actually put down in these personal specifications. There's a lot of work that's been done around what we call um, biased wording. Now, some of that might be something such as um, if you're saying something along the line of workmanship or has a compassionate nature. Workmanship, independence, um, strategic leadership skills tend to appeal more to male applicants. And the softer skills, such as um, compassionate, as we've said, potentially a lot of jobs working with children, um, tend to lean towards female. And there's been a lot of work done about that. So it, you need to try to, when you're compiling, if you use personal specifications, try not to include some of those words. Okay, if you, if you, um, I mean, I think, honestly, 
I believe that we will always use those words because you're looking for skills. Um, however, it is something that a lot of um, HR experts tend to analyse to ensure that they actually appeal to a wider audience of applicants. Okay. Step three, devise your recruitment strategy. How do you want to recruit and attract suitable applicants? There are a variety of options available here uh, for you to think about regarding the job and the target audience. You might need to consider the geographical area that you're targeting, the method of recruitment. Now, this is back in the day. There used to be a local paper. And a certain day of the week, it was filled with jobs. And people would buy the paper, look in the paper, and apply for jobs. Um, it's how most recruitment, I would suggest, was done. That has changed um, incredibly over the years. To put an ad in a um, fairly respected readership paper now is probably about 800 to 1000 pounds minimum so um and that ca that can be beneficial if you're looking for a fairly high level role but there are plenty of other alternatives there are some amazingly creative people that work within elim who i've seen actually um actually advertise their jobs on their own facebook page with a little video etc of about the job or someone talking about the job you can use facebook you can use linkedin on indeed if you're a charity you don't have to pay now a lot of people don't like in indeed there's a key i believe with using indeed you advertise you have no longer than a two-week period of when people can apply for you interview the following week and hopefully then you look to start within the next month. It's about targeted recruitment. When most people look on Indeed, or should I say people are looking for jobs, you cannot get away from the fact that Indeed is there. It's one of the ones that pops up first. So don't just discount it. It's worth, it's definitely worth um, kind of looking at. Also as well, one of the uh, mediums that I've been using recently is to send it through to all of the local churches that may be, you know, within your areas. You now, you might have to be a little bit careful with that because you don't want to be poaching from your, from your neighbour's church because you won't be too popular, I would imagine, with the, um, with the elders and the minister. But it is definitely a way that we, we tend to kind of get our message out there about vacancies. Another thing is that, as I said, um, Employee referrals as well. I have to say, when I worked with the nuns, they had such a good reputation as employers, we never really ever had to recruit. We just used to go into the um, dining room where uh, staff were having their lunch and would say, look, we're looking for this. And then generally, we would have two or three letters the next week and we'd interview, etc. So, you know... At the, end of, at the end of a service or um, prayer groups, etc., or if you have a notice board in your churches, there are definitely other places to consider, as well as 
more recently, the government are actually having incentive schemes um, for employers to help get people into employment. So have a look on the Gov websites. The job centres are very good. If you you need to develop though a relationship with a, um, a oh, they used to be called careers advisors, I guess I don't know what they're called these days. But um, um, if you can get them to actually come out and visit your site and develop a relationship with them, they're generally very good. Apprenticeships as well is something that a lot of people don't tend to look at because they think it's going to be really complicated. Um, there's a lot of help out there now and you don't have to be just 16 to 25 to be an apprentice anymore. So you can look to possibly attract somebody into a post who's older, who's looking for a career change. And that's something we've done recently up in Malvern. Okay. Um, the other, there are other things as well. External recruitment agencies, though they're generally quite expensive. They'll tend to charge you between 8 and 15% as an introduction fee. Um, links with local colleges and universities. We're quite fortunate up at Malvern. We tend to have a university on the doorstep there. So we tend to use a lot of the um, students there for casual work during the summer. And um, there are different other as I said, ways that you could, non-traditional outreach methods. You can go to job fairs. Um, I think we've talked about LinkedIn, etc. So most people would expect to search and look for a job online. A lot of people as well will go to your website. So if you, if you are really interested um, in developing your website and your HR resource on your website that can be a fabulous tool for attracting people to your church or organisation. Okay. So, your recruitment strategy has been a huge success and we've accumulated a high pile of applications. What's next? Here are the steps that we follow when we face this exact challenge. Sort through the applications to find the ones with the minimum qualifications. Separate those with um, the preferred credentials. Consider the applicant's experiences, certif certificates, certifications, sorry, technical competencies and skills. Candidates who have the minimum qualifications and the required credentials will be shortlisted. Concerns regarding any applications, I would make a note of them, and then if you're going to shortlist those people for interview, I would just mark them down for questions you might want to ask. For example, have they got their own transport if they're going to be driving around different sites? The thing that quite often, um, when you're shortlisting applicants, everyone involved in the selection process from the shortlisting stage onwards must understand not only the need to avoid unfair discrimination and the potential risk to the organisation's reputation should a candidate make a tribunal claim. Now, where that I've kind of come into contact tact with that in the post that I've uh, currently been working within is if a position should have a GOR requirement. So a GOR requirement is a genuine, genuine occupational requirement. Quite often we would utilise that for it to be a Christian. Okay? Um, and you have to really evaluate if the job actually 
does require the person to be a Christian or whether it's just a desirable. Um, you know, if someone's going to lead worship or prayers, of course, it would probably fall into the criteria of a genuine occupational requirement. But if they're going to be an admin person or a financial officer, that may not be the case. Okay. Consider the benefits of a dive. Consider the benefits of a diverse workforce can bring to an organisation, and that's really trying to look at the, you know, the perceptions that we might start to develop in our heads before we actually even meet in these potential applicants. I have in the past, um, once I've got down to a short list, we may undertake a preliminary interview, possibly via Zoom. Or if I was looking for a receptionist or something like that, I might ring up the person and just ask three questions. You know, for Malvern, it's quite easy. Do you realise we're quite remote? Do you have your own transport? Um, do you mind working weekends if the job involves working weekends or evenings? Um, or, or, you know, are you aware that this, this position is only a temporary position? I think that they're really useful questions to ask, particularly if you've got a volume of applicants or, you know, you would modify them um, for whatever position you're advertising. But you can ask some of those basics to help filter down. And you'd be surprised the amount of people that you've I've rung and they've said, I didn't realise it was just fixed term or it was only temporary. And that will help you, you know, sift out some of those those um, applicants that maybe might not be suitable for the vacancies that you're advertising. Okay. Ooh, there's a lot of words on this, isn't there? Right. <laughs> okay, the interviewing process. Now, <laughs> I find this slide quite difficult, really, because we cannot get away from the fact that generally... Most people conduct interviews. It is the way that most jobs actually are kind of um, recruited for and um, as part of a selection process. There are various other ways that we could look at. But I'm going to focus on the interview process at the moment because it is generally the one that's used the most. To ensure that you try to maintain fair and reasonable in the interviewing process. Um, I guess, really, what you're trying to ascertain in this is that the interview should be an opportunity for us, the employer, to gauge candidates' experience and their ability to perform in a role, explain the employee value propos proposition, including any development opportunities there may be, and to outline the employee benefits we may have as an organisation. And also give the candidate a positive impression of the organisation as a good employer. You know, we're selling ourselves basically at that point to try and attract the, the um, applicant. For the candidate, an interview should be an opportunity to fully understand the job and its responsibilities and all that it entails, that might be, if it's working nights, you know, um, or working weekends, it's really important to cover those types of things at an interview. Ask questions about the organisation and, you know, what's in it for them, the employee value proposition. Decide if they would like to take the job if, if it's offered to them. And um, 
one of the things I think, you know, evident, it can evidence the highlights, the limitation of the traditional interview can be prone to bias. Now, what that's really saying is that um, it's difficult sometimes um, in interviews not to be kind of swayed by bias. And some of the things um, that uh, um, we can kind of look at for those. So these are some of the things that perhaps, you know, we can find that there's a bias for. So one would be, um, or one of the things to try and actually stop us doing is to, um, is to structure the interview um, so that we've got, you know, the same questions that we're asking everybody. Ensure that a fair rating system is used. Now, that might be that you have a score between one and four or you weight certain questions because you feel they're more important in the process. Um, and that really the questions should really be focused on the attributes and the behaviours that are required in the job only. Now, it's, I believe it's quite difficult to do that because I think we're people. And if you can see somebody... Um, feeling particularly nervous or perhaps, you know, not that experienced at interviewing, I would hope that most people who go to an interview would be helped out by the interview panel to be encouraged to try and bring out their best qualities. Um, so, you know, you do find sometimes you go off track. But at least by having a set... Um, format of questions you are then hopefully going to assess everybody against the same things at the end of the interview process okay now some of the interview bias that you can have these are some of the things that you might find um, and again it, I think this is because we are we are human beings stereotyping which is that you know you you tend to overgeneralize or you become fixed on a belief of a person because of possibly you know they may look a certain way or the way they act um, inconsistency in questioning is something that you know if you perhaps you find someone that is from the town that you you grew up in that you might tend to kind of veer questions towards that that particular topic and and kind of um, let that uh, kind of colour your, your view of them. Um, the first impression, you know, if somebody comes in and they're in a really sharp suit, absolute crystal white shirt, and they've got a really lovely firm handshake or a beautiful smile, then, you know, you'll be surprised how many people within that first 10 seconds will think, actually, no, that's the person I want in that job. And it takes longer than that to actually pull out from the person whether they're a suitable person for the, for the position. Um, the horn effect. Now, that's kind of a cognitive bias, linking a trait or feature to a previous bad experience. For example, it might be that it's a... Um, somebody comes in and they might be, I don't know, dressed in a biker jacket or have a long beard or something along those lines. And because you've had a bad experience with somebody who's like that in the past, it may just be in your subconscious. So it's all of those things that you need to kind of just consider, really. And then cultural noise. This kind of is, is a bias that occurs when um, quite often um, 
You think the interviewer is telling you what you want to hear rather than if they're being honest about their own views. And that can happen quite a lot, particularly if there's a lot of competition for a role. Um, Nonverbal bias, again, the smiles, the handshake, the physical appearance, particularly that's something that can um, affect people choosing who might be best for the job. And the contrast effect, which is a type of bias that occurs when, when perhaps you tend to compare somebody to a, a, an employee that you already have. Okay? And it's, as I said, it's a minefield, really, because we're human beings, and if we were computers, we could just, you know, program ourselves not to be that way, but that's just not the case. Okay. Now... Just a, a little quick and to give, give you an opportunity to chat, really, as well. Um, there are other methods of recruiting. Um, and I, if you have the opportunity to do these, I actually believe sometimes they can give you a far more rounded opportunity to decide whether your person is right for that job. Now... One of the things that, um, when I worked at the YMCA, we used to do for nursery workers is we would invite them into the nursery. And um, obviously they were always supervised, but we would ask them to um, invent uh, an activity for the children. And we may have a group of children there with a, a skilled nursery worker in attendance at all times, and they would actually kind of undertake the activity for 20 minutes and we'd watch the children and to see how they actually interacted with the children. You've got things such as assessment days, um, which are really good. They could be make, made up of several things. Short video presentations. Um, quite often, you know, you can ask people to do a presentation about themselves for three or five minutes. Um, and really, you know... I think this is where you can come in. You can be as creative as you possibly want. So I'm going to ask you now if any of you have used anything other than just interviews. We recently added, uh, advertised for a data analy analyst and did a Zoom um, interview and asked all these questions. And at the end, myself and my colleague just didn't have a clue whether anybody actually be any... You know, they're all, we could say they're nice... Yes. Um, we could not tell whether they'd be any good at data analysm, so we invited them in and gave them half an hour to do a short task, explain, you know, we wrote it down so it'd be the fair, explained it to them and got them to... We said, if you don't finish it, don't worry, just explain the method, how you're doing it, what you're doing and how you would present it to us, and that worked quite well. And we've also done the presentations in front of a, a panel. We've done, like, big... This is in the NHS for consultant roles or whatever we've done. Um, they've been asked to do presentation on something quite dynamic. And then we've had a, uh, invited quite a few people to watch. And then we've collected feedback from all those people on the different candidates because you can only actually have... A, you can't have 50 people interviewing someone, but there might be quite a lot of people that need to give their input or be involved so they can do it that way. One of the things, when I was at YMCA, we, um, as I said, we looked for a new CEO. 
And one of the things that we did was we invited the young people that were living at the YMCA to actually come up with a list of interviews. We were in COVID, so it was uh, done by Zoom again. But we fed back their input into the, um, into the interview process. And it was really quite strange, actually, that the, you know, from the traditional point of our views of what we required for a CEO and the young people, what their views were. And it was quite enlightening, actually, because moving um, the strategy that they had, which was obviously um, was not only caring for, but also, um, you know, enlightening people uh, um, in Christian uh, values at the YMCA, to hear what was important to those young people was very good for the new CEO and moving forward. Um, so, yeah, consider those things. It really... It, it, you can be as creative as you like, as long as they're not just, you know... You're just doing it for a... <laughs> you're just doing it for, for like a... I don't know. Britain's got more talent. You don't need anything like that. But uh, having said that, I have to say, when I was a holiday rep, my longest um, recruitment process was I was put on a bus in Leicester and we went down to the south of France and I was there for a week with about 60 other people and we went through an interview process. We had to put a show on. Um, we had to do lots of other stuff, first aid, etc., 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 attend seminars and so on. And um, at the end of it, you were then chosen at the end as to whether you were through to the next round. So I wouldn't expect you to be doing any of that. But what I would say is, you know, you can be creative. Things such as um, some of the more difficult positions to recruit for. So um, we used to have night workers at the YMCA as well. One of the most... Um, I think one of the hardest jobs to do because they were dealing with young people who um, after on a Friday, they'd been out on a Friday night or a Saturday night and do what young people do on a Friday or a Saturday night and would come back quite often, you know, intoxicated or sadly under the influence of um, drugs and have to deal with their behaviours. Now, to ensure that we got the right people in that position we would invite people, if they were successful and they'd moved the panel, they'd gone through the panel interview, to actually come and work a couple of shifts. Now, we would pay them um, at the end of the trial, but they were always supervised and with somebody so that they could experience that type of work because it was quite difficult and it takes a certain type of mindset to be able to you know, work with um, some of the individuals we were there. So, yeah... Consider other methods. It it does help, I think, an organisation stand out. Um, and just coming and meeting the people as well can be a decision as to whether a person will come and work in your nursery or not. And that's important when you're struggling to recruit in those fields, I believe. Okay. Right, okay, to evaluate. So let's assume you've done your interviews, your assessment days or whatever. And this is the time now to evaluate and make the offer. So it's time to check 
with the candidate, the references, and if everything checks out, you can make the conditional offer of employment. Um, there's a chance that the first candidate perhaps might not select um, and therefore you have to kind of fall back on plan B or be prepared to extend the offer to the second candidate. This is something that um, is quite difficult to do so I would normally make a verbal offer first of all and ask somebody to perhaps confirm by email if they, if they are willing to accept the position and then kind of write to them. Now references. I'm going to move on to references. References is something that um, is... Uh, I, I kind of... I want to say come to blows. No, it would be too strong a word to say. Um, I have a difference of opinion in relation to references from some of my line managers. A lot of line managers just want to get the person in the position as soon as they possibly can without bothering to check any references. It's fundamentally I believe important to double check where the person has worked previously because there is a reason why the person has left now there are a lot of organizations that will only put the date a person started the date a person finished and their job title and or if they had any disciplinary action taken against them to me, I think if an employer is prepared to do that, at least you've done a little bit of a background check. Where nursery is concerned, you would probably put in a clause as well about safeguarding and any other you know, respectful um, employer would comment on that, just saying they had no you know, reason to doubt um, or if there was something, they possibly wouldn't give you a reference. Um, I, th I would really urge you to take up references and particularly try to get one from the last employer if you possibly can, okay? Um, you also need to ensure that you're making sure the person is eligible to write in the UK, eligible to work in the UK. And that's something that, you know, we may have fallen foul of in the past. Um, we do take on, you know, I think it's gone up by about 68% um, um, visas for people to, to actually stay and work in the UK, particularly after education, is something that is, is kind of on the rise. And they're constantly changing. So it's really important to check those things out. It's quite complicated and there are lots of different types of visas. Um, but we have got somebody who assists us in Malvern. Um, so if any of you got any queries about wanting to take on um, students from overseas or people who, um, you know, you would like to work with in the UK, you can always contact us in, in Malvern and we can pass on your details um, to speak to our, our chap that looks after that. Medical questionnaires. People always say to me, well, can we send out medical questionnaires? You can't send them out prior to making the offer. You can send them out after, but they have to be. Um, you have to, you have to ensure that they are um, job specific, and you have to consider whether you can make any reasonable adjustment for that person to actually be able to undertake the job that you've offered anyway. And if you can, then you know you are obligated to um, take that person on. Employment offers should always be made in writing, but it's important to be aware that a verbal offer of employment 
that's made in, at an interview is as legally as binding as a letter to the candidate. It doesn't mean to say that you can't do pre-employment checks. It doesn't mean to say that you can withdraw the offer. You can withdraw the offer, but you would generally, you know, pay some type of notice. Okay, and then finally, and this one is really important, I think, is um, the onboarding of the new employee. I don't think... If you've got your person, they've accepted and they've, they've, you know, you've done all of your paperwork checks, etc., and they've arrived on your doorstep um, on Monday, it's the beginning of that employment, you know, with that employee. It's so important to have a good induction programme. So ensure that all of their pre-employment paperwork is completed. And that might be that you haven't had a second reference or you're not happy with the reference and you might need to speak to that person or you've got a copy of their passport or you've seen their right of eligibility to work in the UK. Have you had their DBS back, etc.? Important that you do on-site health and safety for the person. You'd organise the facilities, IT, all of the organisational information and hopefully show them the culture and the values. Now, that is kind of the basics of an induction. I would also suggest you should ensure that they're made aware of the benefits and the policies, that someone takes them through their job description, um, that they're made aware of the learning and development they're going to get, and try to arrange some cross-functional kind of relationship meetings. So people they're going to come into contact with if they're going to come into contact with a finance officer, you know, try to get them to meet with them, for them to tell them what finance does and how their role interacts with finance. And also advise them on their evaluation, what's going to happen during their probationary period. One of the things that, again, that I get called a lot for is we took so-and-so on in such and such a time and we're now coming to the end of their probation and we don't think they're right and I say well have you met with them yet no we haven't how long have you known that perhaps they're not right for the job well kind of after the first couple of weeks really and I say right so we're now six months down the line are we or possibly even which tends to happen is almost two years into the job. Um, and for me, again, this, this evaluation or the probation, as it's called, I would really suggest, if you can, meet a person after four weeks they've been in the role. If you've got any concerns, you need to highlight them and document them at this point. And share with the person, you know, maybe... They just ha don't seem as confident in the role that you are expecting or they haven't met some of your initial um, objectives. Just share that with them and get it documented. I'd then review that potentially after three months. And if a person still isn't, you know, performing, I would be saying, look, we're halfway through the probation. We've got concerns. We're going to give you some support. But I have to tell you... If we have to have some following meetings between now and whenever your probation finishes, um, we very well may not be able to confirm you into post. 
And, and that is, that, that's, I would do it that way because I think it saves people a lot of pain and anguish. And it's about being transparent with the person. Now, I know that's difficult sometimes, but that's why hopefully there are people like myself out there that you can speak to. There are some templates, I believe, on um, Elimnet. Um, and some of you here, I think, always, you know, you're already in HR, aren't you? So um, you probably would advise in those situations. Um, and you can always ask for someone from HR to be involved. Um, that's fine. Okay. And then just finally, you know, for me, that's, it, that's, that is the seven steps, really. Identify the hiring needs. Prepare the job descriptions. Devise the recruitment strategy. Screen and shortlist the candidates. Conduct the interviews. Evaluate and make the offer. And then onboard the employee. And I would say that onboarding the new employee <laughs> as important as everything else. Okay. One of the, uh, again, really goes back to, for me, having worked in commercial kind of HR and a lot in the charity sector, is I think you can have the best strategy and the best building in the world. But if you don't have the hearts and minds of the people who work with you, none of it comes to life. And I think any of you that worked in HR, you're the people that actually have an opportunity to kind of... Um, advise leaders on that um, and it you know people are so important in in um, any organization um, they are you've got your bricks and mortar but as I said even the bricks and mortar doesn't come to life without any souls in there and that's what we look after so we should look after people in in the business and sometimes it can just be you know a good morning or finding out how their weekend was it doesn't necessarily have to be the best salary package in the world. We run a, a nursery part of our church um, and apprenticeships has been something we're, we're very keen on. And over the last couple of years with this apprenticeship levy, major problems. Um, so the last two apprentices we've tried to get have taken nearly three months, four months to recruit, by which time they've gone and got another job. Um, so... And then also, the, the government are offering these incentives of £3,000. So at the moment, we've got two apprenticeships going. We haven't seen any of the money come through yet, so maybe that's something I can have a chat with you about later. Um, but essentially, about this portal and, and uh, uploading apprenticeships, how can we simplify this process? Because, um, you know, these are young people, um, you know, and they're wanting to start their careers them with a training organisation, um, but three or four months is far too long well there's been a few changes i think up in in morven in particular and obviously um as you know we sadly lost uh, Gemma, who kind of looked after nurseries um that's something i'm working on actually at the moment because the apprenticeship levy is if you like it's the pot of money that as a large employer we have to pay into and um we're also, um, it, the strange thing is, is that I think the way that Elim has set it up or had it set up was that before um, it just used to go into the pot and then go back into the government funds. My question really would be is if we've got our own um, payroll system, 
can't we just do it through that, which would actually simplify that whole process? I would need to check that back out, and that's what I'm trying to fathom out with Robert at the moment, because from an HMRC point of view, we supposedly are one employer, yet we have separate payrolls. And that's where the problem comes with apprenticeships, because they're seeing you as an independent employer and not part of the bigger Elim, or you'll go to try and put stuff in, they'll say, well, you can't access the levy. Because you're not, you're not, if you like, coming out of the pot that is Malvern. So that's something that, bear with me on that, because it's only something that I've kind of come into, um, and we've been looking at it for quite a while. Just a question about bias and things. Mm. If you're in a small town or an area and you know... Um, some of the candidates or you know somebody that knows them well and knows background mm. information on them that might not make you want to employ them mm -hmm. um, but it's a bit difficult in an interview to put, I mean yes, it yeah. just makes it quite a difficult situation where do you stand on that sort of thing? I would, it depends on on the position as well if, if it's something like in Say, for example, in relation to safeguarding, yeah, yeah, I would actually pursue that more in depth. So it may be that if you had a concern, on, and particularly with something that's safeguarding, that's justifiable, you could speak to someone about that. Yes. Um, I think that would, that's how I would deal with it. It might not be about safeguarding. You know, right, obviously, but along interview, those lines, yes, you yeah. could ask mm. specific questions on that, but then yeah. you're not asking the other candidates no. the same question and you don't have that background information on them. So it's just a little bit awkward. I, where that might be, I think you, you have to think then carefully about your mm. questions. But I have an issue with um, the kind of questions that I asked during an interview, yes, for example. Yeah. It's almost geared towards getting the perfect answer from an individual. Tell me about a time you did this. Yes, uh, they yeah. call them competency-based questions. Yeah. When, why ask those type of questions when you know that in some cases you might not get the truth out of it or you might just get you know, more like the... the, the um, other version, other yeah, version of we yeah, are not yeah, get yeah, the full yeah. picture. Yeah. I did like the fact that you said uh, for nursery, you do you do take people into yes. there and then tell ask yeah. them. I think that's a more practical approach. Do you I think totally we should agree. get yeah. a, a good? If, if you have the time and uh, um, I, I just didn't want to take away from the fact that interviews are generally how most people are recruited. You know, I would say seventy percent of the way people are, are, are recruited is through an interview basis. If you have an opportunity to be more creative and more practical in, in applying those skills, I totally would agree with you and say, do you know what, H have your questions as well. Do, do a mini interview, but if you can get them into the workplace scenario and actually doing something, for example, perhaps with young people or children, you'd need them to be supervised, obviously, from the safeguarding perspective. But something like that and the observations of that are just as valuable, I believe, because some people are just brilliant at interviewing. Some people are amazing at interviewing. Some people go to bits at interviews. But 
they will be fabulous youth workers or, or, or you know, admin assistants, whatever it is. So that's why if you can use a selection or a variety of things, you're going to make a better judgment, I feel. Recruiting for ministerial roles is entirely different. Mm, Does that yes, come is. under this at all, or is that an entirely different section? Entirely different section. That's fine. I won't ask. So, and the reason <laughs> that reason that that happens is is that they um, ministers technically are not employed; they are almost self-employed. Oh yes. Yeah. Because um, and so they work under something called an order of proceedings. That's right. Yeah, that so. explains it. There we go. Thank you. No, that's fine. Thank you so much. Um, and as I said, I, please, I'm up in Malvern, alison.dunsmoreatelium.org. If ever you've got any questions, um, please don't hesitate to to give us a shout. And I'd really be interested in trying to do something like an HR forum with any of the people that are HRE here.